Well, thank you, George. I do apologise, and thank you all. Let's just pray. We do thank you, Father, for your word, and we pray that by your Spirit you'll make it real to us all this morning. Open your word to our hearts, and open our hearts and minds and wills to your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> Yesterday afternoon I was uh, listening to a test match and things were beginning to go pear-shaped for England after doing very well. They, I thought rather interestingly, announced a special game going on very soon when old England were appearing and all the old test match players were appearing to play a special game. It seemed to me they were trying to bring in the old guard to save the new guard. Well, when Michael and I taking the service there, it's a bit like old England brought back to a holiday <laughs> service. There we are. Lovely to be with you. And if you were here last week, we started a little series from Exodus in the story of Moses. Please open your Bibles at page 69. And Exodus 3 and 4 are my chapters given to me and the children doing the same across there. So if you've got children, you can check with them what they've been doing and see if it agrees with what we've been doing here in church. The Keswick Convention has just ended. And one of the great high moments of the Keswick Convention is when the challenge is given to those who've listened to God's word to do a response, to say the kind of things we've sung twice this morning, reign over me. That is, am I willing to do whatever God says and to go wherever he sends? It's well over half a century ago, it seems awful, that Margaret and I did that. We stood at the Keswick Convention and we dedicated our futures to God's service. And a few months later... God took me at my word and called me in an Oxford church to the work of the ordained ministry, which has been my life ever since. And very often at that uh, moment, we use the words, words of Isaiah, here I am, here am I, send me. And it became a privilege, a very unexpected privilege to me, that after many years after I'd responded, I was given the privilege as chairman of that great convention to bring the challenge to thousands of people. And there were no greater moments to me than that. And I felt a certain lovely little touch this year when Keswick, when Keith White, who was, as many of you know, curate here, now vice chairman of the Keswick Convention Council, made exactly the same uh, challenge. Behold, here I am, send me. And people responded. What on earth has that got to do with Moses? Well, quite a lot. Just glance at chapter 3 and verse 4 when Moses begins his response, not in the heat of a Keswick Convention tent, and it was very hot this year, but in the even greater heat of the desert, not in a tent, but by a mountain, and he made his response very beautifully, chapter 3, verse 4, Here I am, and you wait for the next bit, the send me bit. Well, a lot has to go on. There's a bit of a dialogue and a debate goes on until glancing over to chapter 4, verse 13, comes the response. Here I am. Please send somebody else. Do you see it? That, of course, is the response of lots of people. Yes, Lord, it's all very well and the people are in need. The world's in a mess. Please, Lord, do something. Send somebody. Now, uh, let me just remind you that why we're studying Old Testament is two reasons. One, it's preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. It's anticipating. It's a great Bible overview. And we saw last week that Moses 
and Elijah would meet with Jesus on the Transfiguration Mount and discuss the Exodus. That's the very word used in Luke's Gospel. Moses knew all about his Exodus, but they were talking about an even greater Exodus when Jesus would die on the cross, as we remember this morning, so that his people, not just Jewish people, but his people, including ourselves, might go free. But in the process of this great overview, looking on, and Stephen in the sermon that we read for our second lesson takes it on, there are snapshots along the way where we find uh, characters responding to God and in the kind of way that you and I might. So last week we noticed that Moses, at the age of 40, felt he was the man to do it. Chapter 2, verse 11 onwards, he was going to lead his people. He had decided against all the odds that he would be a Hebrew slave, brought up in Pharaoh's home with all the privileges and all the high education. He could have remained uh, a prince of Egypt. And if he had remained that, all we would have found nowadays was a mummy. I mean, not the feminine version of the mummy. I mean, the, 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 the sort of he might have been in Egypt. Sorry, that fell rather flat. It was meant to be quite good. But Moses <laughs> might have uh, ended up with just one of those who was in the palace of Egypt, mummified. Let's finish there. But in fact, he chose to be a slave. And being a slave was the most ridiculous thing to offer. But he believed it was right. He wanted to champion his people to lead them out. He was both Hebrew and Egyptian. You know the story. And at 40, he was just God's man. Now, 40 years later, the challenge comes. At the end of chapter 2, we notice it. God heard. God remembered. God looked. God was concerned. He's not dead. He's alive. Did you enjoy the action? I didn't try the whooshes a bit. I did the rest, but I couldn't whoosh. But he is alive. He is not dead. And so he was watching. He was involved. And you go straight on now, Moses was. God was looking down. God was caring. There was Moses, ready. Now, please note the progression. You didn't need your Bible open. See the progression in Moses. Chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go? Verse 13. Suppose I go and say to them, the God of your fathers, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say? Chapter 4, verse 1. What if they do not believe me or listen to me? Chapter 4, verse 10. Lord, I've never been eloquent. Do you get the impression he's trying to get out of it? Do you get the impression he's saying, I'm the wrong person? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And when he gets to verse 13, please, send somebody else. Wonderfully, graciously, God didn't accede. He still sent him. I'm so grateful that God can use reluctant leaders. I don't think I was reluctant when God called me, but there have been many times in my ministry I have been, and God can still mercifully use us. And in the process of God working in the life of Moses, we get a great revelation of who God is. Chapter 3, verse 14, comes the great name of God. Now, when I was studying, we called him Jehovah. Uh, the modern guys call him Yahweh. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Perhaps Yahweh is kind of better to the original Hebrew, but I'm still stuck on Jehovah. It sings well, and I like Jehovah. But he was, the word means, I am that 
I am, I will be what I will be. That is, there's no tense. He is always there. Whatever moment we are, whatever situation we're in, the world's in, the church is in, God is, I am. And that's why it was so staggering that eventually Jesus, who performed the great exodus on the cross, time after time, said, I am. Before Abram was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, in the midst of Moses' reluctant response, we get a character of God revealed to us. Two things, really, this morning, as we study God's Word and later come on to communion. First, it's a personal encounter. That's chapter 3. And then, rather more briefly, a progressive experience. That's chapter 4. A personal encounter. In the opening verses, you get this, what I call the introduction. It's at Horeb or Sinai, a place that, uh, out of the desert, never became kind of sanctified. They didn't make a shrine of it. Though it is interesting that once Elijah, later in the story, when he was really down, when he was depressed and defeated, rushed off back to Sinai just to get the feel. People come back to the Keswick Convention where God had called them just to get the sense that, yes, it was here. There is that sense of holy ground, but in a way it wasn't sanctified. But it was there, and Moses was doing his ordinary job, mundane job, a shepherd, now 80 years of age. He'd been there for 40 years, a lifetime, and he saw a burning bush. My guess is that burning bushes are to a penny in the desert. You don't really get all excited about a burning bush. You don't send to the fire brigade, you just let it burn. But this seemed to be different. The bush was burning but was not consumed, verse 3. Any Scots who are here who were originally Church of Scotland will know that this is your great motto. Ten years in Scotland, I learnt all that. That's the image of the burning bush. And they have the Latin bit underneath, which I won't recite to you. that it was, it was burning but not consumed. And the Church of Scotland saw that as a kind of symbol of their church. Under persecution, under pressure, still going on. hope that's still true. But it's certainly true of the church as a whole. There is that imagery. That yes, uh, pressures will come. Persecution will come. But we're still there. Down the centuries, a number of people who have... Uh, who have decided that God is dead and the church is dead. A book has just been written, I haven't read it, so I can't yet commend it, by Alistair McGrath, called Atheism is Dead, which is very interesting. It is. Atheism now is dead. Find the book, see if you agree. But God is never dead. the, The church is never consumed. The burning goes on. Now, here's what happens. Moses, you see, is curious and he sees what's going on. Verse 3. And when the Lord saw it, he called. Now this is where God comes down to Moses. Moses, Moses, here I am. Incidentally, in Scripture, when God calls with your name twice, something's about to happen. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things. Simon, Simon, there's a whole series of sermons there. Moses, Moses, I'm concerned. I've been looking down, I'm going to speak to you. And see the balance. Don't come closer. Isn't this odd? God calls, and then he says, stop. 
Verse 5, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Do you know, that's the first time the word holy comes in the Bible. Here we are. It's come. And it's God reminding Moses that if it's a, if it's a, there's a relationship which is a relationship of love, it's also an awesome relationship. I'm reading a book called God in the Wastelands by my good David Wells. It's to do with the American scene and it isn't altogether true of Britain, but it is largely. And he has a chapter on the weightlessness of God. Note that noun, the weightlessness of God. In the Bible, the word glory, which we get frequently, actually means weight. And one of the great problems of our age is that we've created a God who is weightless. And all too often, says David Wells in the American scene, we offer a God who is the best thing to offer to make you peaceful and happy and joyful and prosperous. You've tried the world, you've tried atheism, it is dead. You've tried modern science and they've nothing to offer so we've got something wonderful to offer. And it sounds beautiful. But you see, God is not that kind of God. He isn't just there to give you peace and comfort and happiness and wholeness. He's a holy God. And if we have a God who is weightless, then don't be surprised if the church begins to be like it. Superficial, airy, nothing to offer. No word about a suffering world no way of accounting what's happening in our society because, you see, God wasn't that kind of God in our thinking. He was just there to make us feel good. When you forget that God has made man in his image, you start making God in your image. And so, here's the introduction. Come near. But he's a holy God. This service is called Holy Communion. It's wonderful. We have fellowship we remember his death, but it's a challenge to a new way of life. Walking with him in holiness. Introduction. Then secondly, intervention. That's verses 7 to 12. God says, look, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I am concerned about my people in Egypt who are in slavery. And I'm going to fulfill the promise, verse 8, that I promised to Abram long ago. And I'm going to do it, and you see it. Verse 10. So now, go. I'm sending you. You would have thought Moses had been waiting 80 years to this moment. He tried it 40 years ago. And now God is saying, you're my man. But you see, he'd learnt a lot in those 40 years. He no longer had the, the kind of brashness of youth. And he really did wonder whether he was the one to do it. He foresaw the problems ahead. And although looking after sheep in the wilderness is not the most exciting of jobs, it's uh, comfortable enough. And the thought of confronting Pharaoh, our theme next week, is not terribly attractive. But do you see what God is saying? I'm going to do it, so you go. And when Moses begins to argue, God makes a promise. Now, will you note the promise in verse 12? It's a very strange promise. Go, I'll be with you. How often in the Bible does God say, I'll be with you? Our friends here are going to Romania next week. There you are, and God will be with them as they go out into that situation. Our friends in Romania are having problems in the church at the moment. They need our prayers, and they're going out into that situation. And here's a challenge that comes to all of us. 
When we say, who am I? Go, I will be with you. And then comes a sign. Not much cheer in the sign, is there? We see it. This will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you will worship God here. Now, wait a minute. If you want a sign, you want it now to encourage you to go and do it. God says, you go, you go in faith, whatever you feel, you go. And when you get back here, having brought them out, you'll say, yes, it was worth it. Moses, a long time later, after all the hassle, did worship God on that mountain, went up the mountain and met with God and his face shone and he said, yes, yes. Most of us forget. God wants us to go out in faith. The church is facing huge challenges today. Christian witness in the world is facing huge challenges. And God says, all right, you go out in faith. I'm going to do something new and I'm going to send you and you'll see. Exactly the same promise that Jesus gave to the disciples in the upper room when he said, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. Intervention. Thirdly, instruction. Introduction. Intervention. Instruction. And the instruction is in the name. All right, they'll they'll ask who I am. I'm not just the God of your fathers. I am. I hope you realise when I talked about old England at the beginning, I was just pulling your leg. We don't really think we've anything special to offer that isn't being offered now. Be careful. We have to be careful. God is doing new things in a new age. Beware of any faith that lives in the past. It is not enough to say the God of our fathers. It's not enough to say the God who revived this church in this land in the 18th century. We have to live in the present age. We need God to do it. Again, and the word God gives is I am. People will change. Denominations will change. You mark my words, they will. But I am that I am. He brings instruction. And the instruction includes, you see, going off to Egypt. And if you glance on to verse 19, he warns Moses that, yes, okay, you're going to ask Pharaoh, but I know that he will not let you go. So there will be judgment. That's making it hard. Not surprising Moses is ducking it. In a moment, when I finish, I shall come back to the the verse that was my call to the ministry in Isaiah 6, where he did say, Here am I, send me. And I've always, when I've preached on those verses, I've always said that I wish we knew how how Isaiah said those words. And here is Moses, reluctantly, he has said, here I am, but he's now beginning to realise what's involved, as indeed Isaiah did. None of us is called to a comfortable, easy life. The instruction is we have a God who's always relevant, always powerful. A personal encounter. Now secondly, a progressive experience. Chapter 4. If you read it through, you haven't got time now, just read it through when you get home. Do you know how often I've said that from this pulpit and how very few people ever take any notice, but occasionally people might. Read through chapter 4 and see what happens in chapter 4 when eventually Moses reluctantly does go in spite of all the arguments. There are two thoughts. He worked on the leader, God did, and he began to work through the leader, God did. 
He was working on the leader. He was having to convince him. So what happens at the beginning? He does allow him two signs. He offers him two signs. His snake, his staff becomes a snake and his hand becomes leprous. I have no problem with miracles. Indeed, I was surprised if God was God that there weren't miracles. You can't tie God into the natural order of science. Incidentally, I'm intrigued to note that we have a Muslim this evening on television uh, dictated, telling us all about Jesus' miracles. Interesting, that, isn't it, really? Raggy Omar is talking about Jesus' miracles. I wonder if the day will come when we have a, a Christian talking about the facts and fictions of Muhammad. That will be the day. But uh, we have a Muslim telling us about Jesus' miracles. I suggest you come to the evening service. We do you much more good to be here tonight worshipping God. But you see, the miracles are a constant debate. Do you know that the miracles in Scripture only occur very rarely? When God specially at work, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, Moses, Elijah. Not much else. Just the odd bit. But there are moments when God wants to demonstrate that he is the God of all the earth. He is not dead. He is alive and sometimes works in remarkable ways. I've talked to people in desperate mission situations where God has done remarkable things that they've never seen since. Never seen in the ordinary things of their church life. But God seemed to feel he had to do something unusual. Pentecost was an unusual day when the church was born. I've never seen anything like it. But here were two miracles just to encourage Moses to get on with the job. And when he began to back out, look at verse 10. Lord, I have never been eloquent. So comes back the, the word, verse 11. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? It isn't always, you know, the eloquent people whom God can use. I've told the story here before, and I've always hesitated about stories coming back because you know them all, at least a third of you know them all. Um, but I still remember that day, years and years ago, as a young curate, when I took a, a group of lads to the Lake District on a camp took with me a young man who wasn't, had no education whatsoever but had been converted and he desperately wanted to give his testimony. And I spent ages going through this simple testimony of this guy, dear Albert. Came the night when Albert gave his testimony I knew what would happen and it did. He stood up and he said a sentence and he dried up. What a failure. That night I went round the camp. It was strangely quiet. Now, if you've read, led young people's camps, when camps are quiet, there's something afoot. I'm an old hand, and I knew something was afoot, so I wandered round, and I said, hey, what's going on? Um, you know why we're all so quiet, sir? They called curate sir in those days. You know why we're all quiet, sir? I said, no. They said this. If Albert was willing to be a fool like that, it must be real. And it suddenly dawned on me. Albert's lack of eloquence did more for God than all our carefully prepared talks of that week. It was for real. Don't tell God when he calls you, I'm not eloquent, because he'll answer you. Don't make the excuses because he'll provide the answer for the excuses. Okay. Maybe Moses wasn't eloquent, but he was a great leader and he had Aaron to help him. But who made your mouth? Jeremiah says the same in his story. God called him when he was young. I'm too young. I don't know how to speak. So God answered. 
working on the leader till eventually even though he said please send somebody else he went what about working through the leader the end of chapter 4 has many mysterious things but just two things that are interesting they started the circumcision again as a mark of being the people of God there is that solemn word about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart I hope you're here next week because that's when we're going to deal with that big issue next week how God hardened a heart that hardened itself and I've already started preparing and it's, it's, it's powerful teaching and it's disturbing teaching but you see how it ends? It ends with Moses going to the elders and they're glad to meet him. And when he tells them, look at, look at the last verse. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Don't be fooled. By next chapter they're grumbling like mad that Moses has come and said, why on earth did you please go home again? Well, if you want to know why, you're here next week. But they bowed down and worshipped, was a starter. He had got the people ready. He had got them ready. And then he wanted them to understand. Let me go back as I finish to that Isaiah chapter 6 where he did say the right words, here am I, send me. Did you know Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 ends with those words, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send me. And in the Anglican lectionary we always read Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. And we all say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. And I feel like saying it isn't. It's, this is half the word of the Lord. For in verse 9 onwards comes a challenge, go. Tell these people, and they won't hear, and they won't understand, and they'll rebel, and it'll go on and on and on. But go. Do you know the last five verses of Isaiah 6 is the, the only Old Testament chunk that is quoted in the first six books of the New Testament. There's the link between the Old and the New. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Romans, all quoted. Because, you see, that's the reality of life. That's how it is. And the challenge to Christians, of course there's excitement in following the Lord. Of course there's peace of heart in knowing that my sins are forgiven. But if I dare to say, here I am, send me, I'm going into confrontation I'm going into the battle. And though I'm getting on towards as old as Moses was when he was first called, I still cherish the battle. And I hope you do. As in a minute you hold out an empty hand and come to communion, if you love the Lord, whatever your denominational background, you're always welcome to communion. Here, when you receive the empty hand, the bread in the empty hand, you take. Here I am, accept me. And then in the words that follow, we offer our lives a living sacrifice. May God help us to make that meaningful as we dare to hear him saying, here am I. Send me? Or are you still saying, please, send somebody else? Be quiet and then Michael will lead us in our prayers.